the garden. India's government has made a significant move to take direct control of the state of Kashmir. It will try to revoke a part of the constitution which gives India's only Muslim-majority state the right to run its own affairs. Opposition parties have called this one of the darkest days for Indian democracy. At the beginning of August, India announced it was going to withdraw the special status of the region of Kashmir, effectively taking away the autonomy negotiated in the immediate aftermath of its independence from Britain in 1947. This angered Pakistan, which also claims the territory, and many commentators around the world criticized the move as undemocratic. Despite the seismic news, it was several days before the world would hear the reaction from many Kashmiris themselves, because no one could contact them. The internet and phone coverage in Kashmir had been cut before the Indian government made the announcement. The UN's special rapporteur on freedom of expression, David Kay, described the internet shutdown as draconian and said that this shutdown was unprecedented because landline phones and cable TV had also been cut off. But internet shutdowns in general are anything but unprecedented. So far this year, Indians have experienced 77. Practically all of the uh, shutdowns that have happened in India are, again, ostensibly to protect public safety or, uh, in the case of a public emergency, uh, to contain or prevent or stop the spread of disinformation. Day-to-day -day living is disrupted considerably during a blackout. Something as simple as even government services, for instance, which includes getting food rations through the public distribution system. It includes access to health services. People talked about not being able to pay back monthly loans, not having enough cash. A few weeks after the internet was first shut off, Kashmir is still experiencing a blackout. But India is not the only country to use internet shutdowns. Cameroon, Chad, Sudan, Egypt, Benin, but also Venezuela in Latin America, Russia very recently, Syria very often as well. I mean, it's, be it's becoming a very global phenomenon. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I look at the growing trend of simply turning off the internet and ask whether it even works as governments intend. This is Chips with Everything. Hi, I'm uh, Ambika Tandon. I'm a policy officer with the Center for Internet and Society, which is a think tank that covers issues of the way that technology impacts society. So that could be anything from policy and legal analysis to sociological and more sort of empirical fieldwork-based research. Back in 2018, Ambika decided that more needed to be known about just how devastating the loss of internet access can be for people experiencing it. So she teamed up with an organisation called 101 Reporters, which collected stories from several Indian states from people who had suffered during a shutdown. The collection discusses the very different consequences of an internet shutdown for people across a wide range of demographics. For example, the protesting farmers in Rajasthan. It became quite a large gathering. It was about 15,000 people and it remained peaceful. And the government had at that point shut the internet down in that area. And the response from the farmers was that they were quite confused because that actually led to the spread of disinformation about the protest itself. So there were several stories of the protest becoming violent 
whereas that was not actually the case and they said that they would have been able to prove that from the ground if they would have been able to provide evidence that this was actually disinformation another group that has felt the ramifications of an internet shutdown is students we had uh, tiers of students from nagaland from west bengal from jammu and kashmir and there were quite similar stories of the internet being a really important source of uh, lectures of study materials and very basic sort of resources which they are unable to get in other spaces because of uh, the quality of education in their area these uh, resources were completely inaccessible for long periods of time we also found stories of people not being able to take those examinations at all because they were centralized and uh, so for instance for medical uh, certification for uh civil services for joining the administration for these kinds of exams those are standardized at the central level and students in these areas ended up missing out on the opportunity to take these exams at all uh because of the internet shutdown musicians in kashmir also spoke about their experiences when a blackout was ordered in the region a few years ago uh, this was two journalists called umar shah and meer farhat who were covering the story they spoke to four up and coming musicians who were making completely different kinds of music but had all found the internet to be a really good platform to find viewership which was uh, international so the internet was actually very valuable to them in sustaining their livelihood to the extent that their career became entirely dependent on instagram and facebook those spaces were entirely uh, shut down because of the clampdown on the internet to the extent that one singer described it as choking of their voice and uh, that was particularly because he was using his music to voice his dissent so in many ways there was a clampdown on the freedom of expression as well as the uh, effect on the income of these uh, musicians journalists in blackout regions often report that they have no way of sending stories to the outside world Ambika remembers when a reporter spoke of trying to report from the conflict zone of Kasganj in Uttar Pradesh when the internet was suspended there. The reporter in Kasganj was reporting at a point where uh, there were a lot of violent clashes and riots happening in Kasganj. Even if they were able to report information it wasn't in real time so it wasn't in time uh, for the news cycle so uh, they weren't able to accurately counter the spread of disinformation she uh, even talked about having to cross borders to be able to access any internet at all to report through uh, smss and uh, sometimes even that was not working so the kind of verified news cycle was not able to counter the spread of disinformation at all in that case it was a complete failure Journalists outside of Kashmir have reported struggling to contact colleagues in the region. Most of my life and haven't People have also been cut off been from friends thing. and family. I have a friend in Kashmir who was I was not able to contact after the telecommunication shutdown. For how long? Since the order was passed, so that's been about yeah, 20 days now. Gurshabad Grover is a researcher in technology policy. He works with Ambika at the Center for Internet and Society. I spoke to him about the legal provisions in place in India that allow state governments to order so many internet shutdowns. So in August 2017, the Department of Telecommunications published the temporary suspension of telecom services rules and that specifies two criteria for shutting down telecom and internet services and those are public emergency in courts and court un- 
public safety unquote there are still no objective tests to determine whether a certain event qualifies for these criteria these rules state that if an authority wishes to suspend internet or phone access their order should quote contain reasons for such direction and a copy of such order shall be forwarded to the concerned review committee latest by next working day so they can't just flip a switch but as goshabad explains it's still usually quite easy for the government to enact these shutdowns so an official from the home ministry when it comes to the central government or an official from the home department of a state government can unilaterally make this decision when they think it is necessary in case of a court public emergency or court public safety situation basically they just pass these orders to telecom service providers and internet service providers in a region and you have your internet or telecom shutdown when the telecommunications companies receive those orders can they say no to operate as a telecom service provider or an internet service provider you have signed a license agreement with the government and to legally comply with those agreements you have to comply with these orders and uh, when it comes to an area like kashmir which is regularly affected by such state action you in fact may not receive such orders at all so for example ravi agarwal interviewed a small kashmiri internet service provider last year and they found that the ceo of this company just received an informal call i am i'm quoting him now he says we get a phone call from the police shut it down or else and they basically comply with that once a telecommunications or internet service provider receives an order from the authorities gushabad says it can take just 10 minutes for them to cut internet access in the area of course internet shutdowns are not popular on the ground And when people want to force the government to switch the internet back on, they can look to the courts for help. So, for the shutdown that has happened in Kashmir recently, there have been two petitions in the Supreme Court challenging the communication shutdown. One was a petition by the editor of Kashmir Times challenging the larger media shutdown that has taken place, and another petition was challenging the communications blackout as well. But both were deferred by the court. until the state of court normalcy and court is restored in kashmir such challenges have been ineffective recently in in terms of constitutional rights we do have article 19 which gives every indian the right to freedom of expression and speech so there are constitutional arguments to be made against such state action such arguments can derive from international human rights a bit so the right to communication for example is implicit in the right to freedom of expression envisioned by article 19 in the international covenant on civil and political rights in terms of how internet shutdowns have been discussed in international human rights law it is still an open question whether they are legal in 2011 the joint declaration on freedom of expression and the internet endorsed by several experts explicitly says that quote cutting off access to the internet or parts of the internet for whole populations or segments of the public can never be justified including on public order or national security grounds the united nations human rights council for example affirm repeatedly that human rights apply online just as they apply offline and in 2016 they arrived at a resolution by consensus which specifically condemned internet disruptions there are definitely human rights and constitutional arguments to be made against the use of internet shutdowns Gushabad points out that these government orders rarely include a proposed date by which these shutdowns should end. 
so people who find themselves without internet have no idea when they'll next have access. In the past, they've lasted up to more than uh, 100 days in Darjeeling, for example. In Kashmir, they've also lasted about 100 days in the past. Can anything stop India from doing this again in the future? Or do you think these shutdowns are set to continue? I think citizens have to build pressure on the courts and the government to make them realize that internet shutdowns are always a disproportionate way to achieve public order. And there is so much sociological research that has showed how they are ineffective at preventing violent riots and they might be in fact fueling them. So we in India and around the world need to push against such state action. After the break, we'll chat to one researcher who has studied the effect that internet shutdowns have on the level of violence on the streets. I found that uh, compared to the normal dynamics of violent riots across India, the days on which the internet is shut down or social media is shut down actually see surges of violence. We also look outside of India to other governments around the world who are also using the shutdown technique. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we're looking at internet shutdowns. Before the break, we spoke to Ambika Tandon and Gushabad Grover of the Centre of Internet and Society in Bangalore. They explained how state governments in India go about executing internet shutdowns, as well as some of the many ways people are affected when they lose access to the internet. Internet shutdowns aren't cheap. A report in 2016 by Daryl West at the Brookings Institute estimated that over the course of the 70 days of internet shutdowns in India through 2015, the disruption cost the economy $968 million. India has faced criticism, internationally and at home, for shutting off the internet hundreds of times over the last decade. But authorities insist that this policy is meant to protect their people. So my name is Jan Ridzak. Uh, I am currently a research scholar and uh, the associate director for program at Stanford's Global Digital Policy Incubator. We are a multi-stakeholder hub that works on technology and human rights in its various dimensions internationally. Jan has been looking at what happens when governments curb public access to the internet. He recently wrote a paper called Of Blackouts and Bans, the strategy and structure of disconnected protest in India. India, to our knowledge, has had the largest number of network shutdowns or, or internet shutdowns of any country in the world. And in India, almost all of these uh, cases of blackouts, information blackouts, network shutdowns, were ostensibly to protect public safety or to, res to respond to a public emergency and stop the potential spread of disinformation. What we did not have was a shred of proof or evidence on the effectiveness of shutdowns uh, against violence and against the spread of disinformation. We didn't have a single impact assessment from any government on any level to show that, for example, uh, a shutdown stopped or you know thwarted a given number of uh, terrorist attacks. And that leads to the natural question of uh, what exactly are the effects of shutdowns on protest and whether they achieve their intended effects. 
In the paper, Jan expands on a term he coined in previous work, the theory of disconnective action. So the theory of disconnective action states that in conditions where uh, information is disrupted or communication is disrupted, specifically digital communication, there can be unpredictable effects as far as uh, the reactions of people go, the reactions of protesters especially, and that in fact that such a disruption of communication may cause backfire effects, such as an increase in protest or an increase in violence. So let's look at India specifically then. You write that technology and politics are increasingly intertwined in the country. How so? Right. So there's a sort of divergence in effects in India. So on the one hand, the central government has uh, several programs that aim to increase the uh, capacity of the Indian government, the Indian economy, uh, as far as digital technology is concerned. So there is most notably the Digital India program, which aims at the digitization uh, of the entire country, you know, uh, multiple sectors in the industry, uh, the government, and aims to ultimately make India a digital powerhouse, essentially. So on the one hand, you have on the central level, a huge push for digitization in India. But on the local level, if we kind of look at what is happening at the state level or in individual cities, you have uh, public officials, especially in the executive, who enthusiastically uh, shut down access to the internet. So there's a split in the way that these topics related to the development of technology are approached. Internet connectivity remains relatively low in India. Figures from 2018 show that only 34.9% of the population has regular access. But it's on the rise. And with that, so is the use of social media. You know, one of the things to remember about what is happening in India, of course, is that connectivity is being extended massively to millions of people. In a single year, uh, last year actually, uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, were connected to the internet for the first time. And we are talking predominantly uh, areas that are rural, uh, areas that have relatively low literacy rates, and certainly low uh, digital literacy rates. The natural consequence of this phenomenon within the government is, you know, growing panic about how to control information when there is a potential situation that can cause chaos. This is a case which has focused public fury about the treatment of women in India. Well, several years ago, there was a a notable case in which a young woman was raped in uh, Delhi. She passed away from the brutality of that attack. And this was one of the first events in which there was a coordinated campaign online uh, on Twitter, Facebook uh, and other forms of social media, WhatsApp as well, that brought people out into the streets to protest the tacit acceptance with respect to such brutal attacks. Of course, Social media and, you know, apps like WhatsApp also have their downsides. So tell me more about India's problem with fake news. One of the issues that has been very notable on WhatsApp in India, again, is the spread of disinformation. It is especially problematic because WhatsApp is certainly the most popular communication app in India. And it is very difficult to address the spread of false information or disinformation because of the encrypted nature of this communication. So last year, there was a surge of lynchings that occurred across India 
where by various estimates, uh, between 30 and 50 people were lynched or murdered, uh, generally by mobs that formed spontaneously. And they're known as the WhatsApp lynchings because they were supposedly facilitated by false information on WhatsApp, most notably information that claimed that some of the people that ended up being uh, murdered by these mobs were uh, child kidnappers or that they were you know, fomenting uh, ethnic tension or ethno-religious tension. And that being said, this is another thing altogether from suggesting that shutdowns uh, themselves are a viable way to address uh, these problems, which ultimately don't come down to technology uh, in itself, but uh, you know, reach deeper down into uh, deeply rooted tensions in society. State governments in India often justify their use of an internet blackout as a means of preventing the spread of misinformation and the potential online organization of violent riots. But in his research, Jan has found that this tactic isn't necessarily working. I found that compared to the normal dynamics of violent riots across India, the days on which the internet is shut down or social media is shut down uh, actually see surges of violence. So what you see is compared to, again, a normal mm, situation in which violence occurs, there is actually a larger concentration of violence in a given area when there is an information and communication blackout. And the incredible thing is that this is not something that occurs just on a single day. So it's not that on day one of a riot, you see a greater concentration of violence or uh, a larger number of violent events. But this is something that is maintained over the course of several days. So essentially, you see an escalation of violence that is disproportionate relative to the normal dynamics of uh, riots. And at the same time, we also see very ambiguous, very inconsistent effects with regard to peaceful demonstrations. And what I mean by that is that when blackouts take place or when governments decide to implement a blackout, the effectiveness of this blackout at containing or discouraging people from even peacefully protesting is practically no different than a coin toss. It's uh, anyone's guess as to whether it would work. So in other words, there is no consistent evidence that shutdowns are effective against any kind of protest. And uh, the surge in violence uh, can be explained by the uh, idea that shutdowns, what they do cause, and this is, you know, incontestable, is uh, a rise in uncertainty, right? So in uh, more uncertainty, more ambiguity, and more chaos, potentially, uh, they turn a situation that is already volatile into something that is even more uncertain and ambiguous. We focused much of this week's episode on internet shutdowns in India, but India is by no means the only country to carry them out. Well, unfortunately, in the past three years, almost everywhere, I'm afraid, I mean, on all continents, Europe, Latin America, or Africa specifically, which is particularly affected after Asia, and the country which you mentioned, which is India. So uh, where we... You might have heard of Médecins Sans Frontières, the humanitarian organization that sends doctors and other medical professionals to conflict zones. Well, Antenne Sans Frontières operates in a similar way. They fight to defend digital rights and freedoms around the world. Julie Owono is the executive director of this Paris-based organization. As she explains, there are a number of reasons that governments around the world give for switching off access to the internet. 
One of the reasons, which may seem surprising to the audience, is preventing the cheating um, during exams. That has been the case at several occasions in Algeria, for instance, including very recently in June 2019, also in Syria. But also the other very popular reason at the moment has become the issue of disinformation, fake news particularly, and hate speech. You know, it has become easier for certain governments to use the justification of disinformation the fight against fake news, the fight against hate speech, in order to further justify their repression moves. So if someone finds themselves in the middle of an internet blackout, what advice would you give them on how they can maybe connect themselves in some other way? It actually depends on the form of the censorship. So if it's a total blackout, that means you have access to no internet at all. Usually what we advise people to do and communities in general is to have backup plans. In cases where, for instance, you're a city near a border and nearing a country which has access to internet, well, some of the people will just cross the border and go access internet from the other country. That was the case, for instance, in the DRC in January 2019, or even in Chad, some of the Chadians went to the Cameroonian border to access internet. You need to have a VPN installed. There are so many VPNs out there. Most of, many of them are free, but you just have to make sure that they have a privacy policy that's respectful of your personal data and your right to privacy. So that's one example uh, of the ways you can bypass social media blackouts. The other way is to use circumvention, uh, traditional circumvention tools. And I'm thinking specifically of the Tor browser, which can allow you to circumvent censorship, provided that it's not blocked. One thing that I would like to mention is that there could be infrastructures that are put in place like mesh networking or community networks. So community networks are almost like an intranet. So it's a, it's a small internet infrastructure that is built within a community. And depending on the agreement that you may have with telcos, it's sometimes possible to have it connected to the international bandwidth. So these are infrastructures that can be developed to some extent to try to counter the negative effects of uh, internet blackouts. As internet access increases across the globe, it's possible we'll also see an increase in internet shutdowns. Julie says it'll take a lot to deter authorities from the practice. So until social media platforms take their share of responsibility in order to limit the spread of disinformation and hate speech on social media platforms, I'm afraid more governments will have an excuse and will use that justification. And also until the international community takes it very seriously and condemns any time there is a shutdown anywhere from any country, well, I'm afraid we're going to see that trend continue to grow. Huge thanks to all of my guests for joining me this week. You can find out more about the work that each of them does on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. But that's it from me this week. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.